Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Suchi Talati, the founder and executive director of the Alliance for Just Deliberation on Solar Geoengineering. I'll ask Suchi about some basics. What is solar geoengineering? Why might it be needed? And why is it controversial? Then hear about how her organization is seeking to build capacity among civil society groups so that everyone, not just wealthy nations, has meaningful input into the governance of solar geoengineering. This topic and Suchi's work is extremely challenging, but it is fascinating and extremely important. Stay with us. All right, Suchi Talati, welcome to Resources Radio. It is great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. So Suchi, we are going to talk today about solar geoengineering and in particular about governance issues all around solar geoengineering. But before we do that, we always ask our guests how they got interested working on environmental topics, whether that started as an interest uh, early in life or, or later in life. So what drew you into this field in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I've always been really interested in the environment growing up, but I think, interestingly, it was watching probably An Inconvenient Truth. I think I was in high school um, that really drew my attention to the topic, um, and that was, I think, in the early 2000s, um, and really just shifted my perspective on kind of what role I could play um, in the world and kind of what, what I should work on. Um, in college, I actually started out as a biomedical engineering major, and then quickly figured out I had no aptitude for biology. And so uh, changed majors to environmental engineering, um, took the opportunity to learn about policy for the first time. I interned on Capitol Hill with uh, then-Senator Obama, um, and was just I just fell in love with policy and wanted to figure out, you know, if I could find an intersection in this space. And climate policies is where I landed um, and kind of sitting in the center of kind of controversial issues like solar geoengineering, but also, you know, like carbon management um, has been kind of throughout my career. And these have just been really fascinating spaces that I think we don't think about in the ways that I think we often should because they're hard. They're they're really challenging spaces. And, um, and so I really just wanted to dedicate my career to making sure that we have kind of the most inclusive spaces when it comes to the hardest topics. That is such a cool description. And um and when we think about the hardest topics, you know, it's hard to beat solar geoengineering for a really, really tricky topic. So um so I'm looking forward to talking with you about it. Um, but before we get into the weeds about, you know, governance issues around solar geoengineering and kind of what you're working on in this space, um, let's just define the term um, uh, for people who might not be familiar with it. So what is solar geoengineering? Why might we need it in the future? And why is it so controversial? Yeah, so happy to dive in. Um, so solar geoengineering refers to large-scale intentional methods to reflect sunlight that can cool the planet. Um, so the reason that we know this works is because of large volcanic eruptions that have sent materials up into the upper layer of the atmosphere called the stratosphere. And so most recently, um, Mount Pinatubo in 1991 um, erupted in the Philippines and sent so much material into the stratosphere that it actually cooled the planet by over half a degree Celsius for over a year. Um, so this is something that we know could work and solar geoengineering could be a potential way to some of those responses. So this is something that we're thinking about in the context of 
you know, a much worsening climate. Um, this is not something that anybody wants to think about and want or wants to need. But unfortunately, you know, that's where we are. This could be something that we might need to use. Now, we don't know if it's going to have the capacity to actually you know, function the way we need it to, but we have to talk about it. And so, you know, even if we were to get to net zero tomorrow, climate impacts will continue for the next several decades. And even if we were to invest in adaptation at the levels that we should be, which we are not, there are certain kinds of impacts that adaptation can't address, like extreme heat, like you know, massive sea level rise, like extreme events. That's where solar geoengineering comes into play. Um, and so we know that it could be a potential tool to limit human suffering, but it also could exacerbate the same injustices that have led to climate change. And so we have to really think about how we kind of build research around this topic, the ways we actually, you know, solicit research questions, how they get funded, who gets to participate in those processes. And beyond that, as we start thinking about, you know, frameworks that can govern potential deployment, um, it's so, so critical that we think about the intersection of solar geoengineering with justice. Um, this is a space that I think is very nascent and is new to a lot of people, but really thinking about the role that the most vulnerable have to play um, is really critical to how this field is going to move forward. It's really, you know, the communities that live in kind of these really challenging environments already that have the most to gain or lose from solar geoengineering knowledge. Um, and so that's kind of the role that I'm stepping into with this new organization. That is great. And um, and of course, we'll have a link to um, the Alliance for Just Deliberation on Solar Geoengineering in the show notes so people can go check it out and learn more about the organization. Um, but one more background question before we kind of get into this these questions of, of justice, um, which is uh, at this point, are there any international governance structures that exist for deliberations around solar geoengineering, or is there just like nothing out there because it's so nascent? There's really nothing on the international stage, um, which is deeply concerning, right? We know that solar geoengineering is associated with so many uncertainties and risks, um, and we have to be able to kind of have a much broader discussion to be able to kind of understand the trade-offs when we are talking about solar geoengineering, but there are no frameworks um, at you know the international level, and there are very few that are even evolving at the national level. And as we start seeing kind of these some of these early stage efforts that are kind of really concerning that, you know, have kind of been evolving over the last year or so, especially from the private sector, this growing lack of governance is becoming so much more blatant. Um, and the fact that we don't have any consequences or agreements in place around irresponsible or harmful action is deeply concerning. Yeah. And we're, and we're going to talk in a few minutes about, um, you know, some of those actions that that people, uh, I think, rightly consider irresponsible um, around solar geoengineering. But um, but first, let's talk about um, these justice and, and governance issues. So uh, this is a really hard question, and I'm sure you could write entire books about it. Maybe you have written books about it, or you are writing a book about it. But um, in your view, what would a just governance structure look like around the topic of solar geoengineering? And what are some of the really important steps that need to be taken uh, to get us moving in that direction? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really hard question. And I think, 
you know, as, as I've been engaging in this topic for the last several years, I think what's very clear to me is that I don't know the answer to that question yet. I think what I do know is that there are very clear critical steps that need to be taken to start moving towards that goal that we're not yet taking. And so thinking about things like public participation, which we know is a critical component to doing good science, to good research, to making good decisions that are kind of well-considered and democratic, and thinking about what we actually need for that to be you know, inclusive is, is really challenging. Um, and so one of the things that I think is incredibly missing from solar geoengineering is that knowledge to be able to participate. And so before you can actually build structures to get public input into anything, people have to understand what this is and what it means for them and what it looks like in their communities and to be able to ask questions about, you know, what this technology looks like, um, what, you know, what the uncertainties are and kind of what we know and what we don't know. Um, and that just really isn't happening yet. I think that's true domestically and that's true internationally. Um, and that's kind of a really key component of justice that we haven't quite gotten there yet. And and I think one of the biggest parts of um, thinking about just governance is this idea of procedural justice. It's about fairness in decision making. Um, and I don't think that's something that we've been successful at for anything, really, to be quite frank. And I think when we look at climate governance historically, it's been very challenging. It's been very colonialistic. And we have an opportunity to really shift the way we do, you know, governance for solar geoengineering. It doesn't exist yet. And we have a huge opportunity to build frameworks in a totally different way. Um, and I know that sounds really idealistic and naive, but you have to start somewhere. And I think, you know, I know that an ideally just system can't exist for anything, but I do think we have a moral imperative, especially for solar geoengineering, to think about what types of systems can contribute to making the you know governance of this technology as least unjust as possible. Yeah. And one of those, you know, something that comes to mind as you're describing the procedural justice piece is um, just like the scale and scope of the effort that might be needed so that, you know, people can meaningfully participate, right? Because solar geoengineering potentially could affect everyone on the planet. Um, and so just like, how do you think about the um, the scope uh, of action that you envision for these deliberations? Like, um, I imagine you're not talking about, you know, involving every person in the world in a deliberative process, but like, how do you bound that activity? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really hard. And, and I think this idea of global consent and this like, you know, version of getting everyone's input is, is not possible, right? And, and I think we have to be able to start at, you know, at the very beginning to say, you know, what are the different sectors in this space? who's missing, and where can we start? Um, and to me, what's really clear is that the Global South has been largely excluded from this conversation. Um, and it's a very heterogeneous region, of course, right? There are so many different countries that you know constitute the Global South, um, but that's really where the most climate vulnerability, you know, is really, you know, centralized. And thinking about, you know, who in the Global South is then missing, right? And we have to kind of kind of parse that apart, which is hard. But I think what's been really clear to me is that civil society 
is a place where we can start thinking about getting more diverse representation from a lot of different perspectives. Um, this is a sector where policy is built. It's where we can hold governments accountable. It's where we advocate for what the public wants. Um, and this is a sector that's been almost entirely missing from the solar geoengineering conversation. And so where I wanted to start was thinking about civil society across the global south and what I can do to make sure that their participation is enabled in a way that's not biased, that's not done with any sort of agenda setting from me, from anyone else, but to say, here are resources to help you lead this type of work internally, and what can we do to have you kind of contribute to the broader deliberative process? And I think that's a place to start, right? And I don't, I don't think we know where kind of this type of work will eventually lead. But I do know that without this type of work, you know, we're going to see a continuation of the way processes have happened in the past, which are, you know, largely centralized in the global north, which are largely done without the input of different types of publics, and which are really colonialistic in nature. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And, um, and is, is such a, such an important approach. Um, you know, I know that one of the pieces of um, of this work that you've already alluded to is capacity building. So, um, when you think about building capacity in the global South among civil society, what are um, well? First, can you help us understand why that matters so much, and also why it matters to uh, you know do it with these specific groups, and and then also maybe how do you do it? Like, what are some of the steps on the ground that you envision taking in the future? Yeah, absolutely. So I think capacity building is one of those things that gets talked about a lot, but we haven't really clearly defined. And so that's something that I actually uh, um, released a paper about when I launched the organization in April is to say, this is how we are defining capacity building. And this is a model for how we hope to implement this work. And so from my perspective, capacity building has to look at not just the knowledge that you're trying to build, but the process through which you're doing it. And so making sure that you are taking into consideration, you know, what people, you know, need to know, what they want to know, making sure that skills and not just information are a part of that. Um, and then making sure that you're doing so through, you know, partnership with, you know, the local leaders in that space. I don't want ownership over this knowledge. I don't want ownership over these processes. What I want to do is empower that knowledge and ownership in different places. And so making sure that capacity is built in ways that are sustainable, in ways that are just, and then in, in ways that are actually, you know, used, right? I think one of the biggest challenges with capacity building, especially when it's supply driven, like it is for solar geoengineering, is making sure that people also have incentive to want to engage in this space. And so thinking about ways that immediately enable use of that knowledge, whether it's participating in research question development or participating in, you know, assessment or governance processes, or just kind of having more meetings across different regions, you know, with other organizations that are talking about this, that are engaging in this, and then with experts that they, you know, have questions that they can actually kind of talk to in a, in a much more informal way. And so that's kind of the way that I'm thinking about this. Um, and, you know, and the reason it's so important is I think, I think this is, you know, cross-disciplinary, right? It's, it's a core part to democracy, right? We, we have to have an informed public to be able to have democratic processes. And I think, you know, in 
in spaces that don't have good information and, you know, unbiased knowledge built, misinformation becomes much more pervasive. And I think we're seeing that in a lot of different ways, especially in the United States, of this kind of really catastrophic rise of misinformation. Um, and so thinking about capacity building is just so important to I think there are a lot of key differences when it comes to capacity building for solar geoengineering and other things like carbon dioxide removal. Um, when we look at something like CDR, um, it's inherently slow. Like we know that it's going to take a really long time to scale, and we know it's really expensive. And that's kind of why I wanted to focus this work on solar geoengineering, um, because it's it's really different in those ways, right? It's actually incredibly fast um, and relatively cheap when it and that is a very relative term, right? So something like solar geoengineering would cost a few billion dollars a year. Um, and so I think we have a really narrow window of time to actually build this knowledge in ways that give people the space and time to understand something this complex. Um, because when it happens, um, in terms of, you know, movement, not, not in terms of deployment. When we start thinking about decisions, really, you know, cascading high level decisions, um, it'll be too late to really build up that participatory knowledge structure that's necessary for participatory decision making. And so thinking about how to build knowledge um, and the best ways to do that has to start early. And for solar geoengineering, we just don't have as much time as we do for other types of technologies. Yeah. You know, one of the things that makes me think about that that timing element is, um, you know, what I might see as a, as a tension between uh, the speed at which it can be deployed and the lack of information we have on its potential effects. So it seems like there's a, you know, there's a million physical science questions that um, we don't really know the answers to in concrete terms, you know, effects on rainfall patterns at, you know, like um, granular geographic scales, uh, all sorts of other like physical science effects. So how do you think about uh, capacity building in the context of even if you can build capacity among individuals or organizations relatively quickly, you're still going to be building that capacity to a point where there are deep uncertainties going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I think building knowledge around solar geoengineering is actually really important in the context of that uncertainty. I think knowing what we can and cannot know is actually really important for policymaking, right? Every policy decision we make is made in the context of uncertainty and, and understanding what that uncertainty is and what science can or cannot tell us actually will lead to better kind of deliberative processes, right? And if we don't have that level of kind of engagement in the topic up to that point, I think we're going to see kind of much, much kind of harder more challenging conversations because people don't know what we can't know. And so those uncertainties, I think, are just so critical for even understanding kind of the potential for this type of approach and the potential impacts, right? Because I think a lot of the geopolitical concerns around solar geoengineering are also related to attribution and this uncertainty, right? If solar geoengineering were to be deployed and we saw some sort of massive climate catastrophe in a particular place, how do we know that it was either, you know, contributed to or caused by solar geoengineering, or if it was contributed to or caused by climate change. Um, and there could be a lot of geopolitical consequences to the answer, but we might not be able to know the answer. And so making sure that those types of understandings are very clear in how discussions and deliberation happen is so, so important. 
Yeah. Yeah. To use the Donald Rumsfeld formulation, I think maybe we're talking about moving things from the category of unknown unknown to the category of known unknown. Does that yeah. sound about right? <laughs> it does. And I think it's also just kind of acknowledging that there will be unknown unknowns. And there are, unfortunately, are not a ton of ways to kind of limit that number, right? Because they're, <laughs> they're unknown. And so it's, it's, it's just, it's one of these types of technologies that, you know, there's still so much more we can learn through modeling and potentially small scale experimentation, but there are inevitable things that we just can't. Um, and that makes it a really, really hard topic to tackle. Yeah. Well, you said you like to work on hard problems, so hopefully people are getting a sense of why this one is so hard. So moving from the abstract, uh, maybe back down to the concrete for a minute, um, you know, some of our listeners might have heard about this, but there have actually been some like pretty dubious efforts by small companies that are uh, selling supposed carbon offsets by releasing small amounts of sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere. At least I, I think that's what they've been doing. And again, it's happening at very small scale, to my knowledge. You can please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but like, uh, rather than talking about any specific companies or any specific activities, I'm wondering if you can reflect a little bit more broadly on what role you think the private sector should be playing at this stage in developing solar geoengineering technologies, or whether it's like too early uh, for them to be, um, you know, participating or certainly deploying things at this stage. Yeah, um, it's definitely way too early for any talk about deployment and the private sector. Um there's just so much that we don't know. And I think the real challenge with solar geoengineering is that there really, from my perspective, should not be a profit relationship, right? There's too much that we, as we said, don't know. And the types of impacts that could cascade um, are just really challenging to understand how that could be related to any sort of market structure, right? And when we think about solar geoengineering, just kind of in its essence, why it exists. From my perspective, and I think for most people who work in this space, you know, solar geoengineering is something that we work on because it could have the potential to limit human suffering. You know, and as I said, we don't know the answer to that question yet, but when we start mixing in things like profit, when it comes to human rights, um, I think things start getting very blurry and very problematic very quickly. And when we kind of look at, you know, companies who have started to kind of, you know, do this kind of very, very early stage, very small scale form of quote unquote deployment, um, they're not doing it in a way that's actually engaging any of the people they're claiming to be doing it for. Um, and that's not really something the private sector knows how to do. Um, and so I don't think the private sector really has a role to play right now, if ever. Um, and I think there are kind of key roles that um, philanthropy has to play. There are key roles that civil society has to play, that the public sector has to play. But this is one space where I don't think the private sector has kind of a clear role and probably shouldn't. That's really interesting. And it's so different from from many of the kind of market-based policies that we often think about when it comes to, to climate change mitigation. Uh, as we mentioned earlier on and in, in the intro, you know, you've recently founded the Alliance for Just Deliberation on Solar Geoengineering. Um, I'd love for you to just tell us more about this organization. Like, what do you want to do? Are you going to be out there, like, traveling around, talking to people about solar geoengineering? Are you going to be training the trainers? What are you going to be doing? 
Yeah, um, I hope it's kind of all of the above. Um, so this is something that I've taken some time to kind of think about what it should look like and how it should play out. Um, and I'm incredibly excited by kind of the wide array of opportunities that hopefully DSG can take on. And so, you know, talking to people, kind of building kind of not just kind of knowledge, but kind of a willingness and a desire to want to be a part of this conversation. I think also really thinking about how this narrative has existed thus far and what it would take to change it, right? I think communication around solar geoengineering has been really stuck in a very vicious cycle of the loudest voices being the only ones that are amplified. And to be honest, most of those voices being white men. Um, And it's been kind of the only way that this field has really been perceived, right? This controversy is kind of the immediate thing people talk about when you talk about solar geoengineering. And so how do we shift that? And I really want this organization to play the role of being a trusted institution, being an honest broker in providing information and providing perspectives, right? I think there's being neutral and being unbiased is incredibly important when it comes to capacity building, but that doesn't mean that DSG can't have opinions on what good governance looks like or how justice should be integrated into this field. Um, and so having this organization kind of be an honest broker and kind of being a voice for how inclusion and diversity and good policy kind of are really intertwined around solar geoengineering is something that I really hope that DSG can do. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, in terms of building knowledge, I think that's such an important kind of main goal of this organization. But after that, it's also kind of building pathways to kind of where conversations are happening. I think one of the hardest parts when it comes to thinking about solar geoengineering in the United States is kind of it's 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 often viewed through a domestic lens and thinking about kind of climate justice from a global lens is is so so important and so i hope to kind of build a lot more pathways for conversation between civil society across the global south and in the global north i think we need to have a wider understanding of perception of how people are experiencing climate impacts of how they think about these topics rather than continuing to see this like very pervasive thing where we're mostly seeing a lot of people just speak on behalf of others. Um, and so trying to just build kind of that kind of wider understanding of how people are thinking about this and to actually build that kind of wide set of diversity in a space that has been really exclusive for just too long. Yeah. That's, that's sounds fascinating and, and so important. And yeah, your point about uh, us in the United States being you know, myopic often around these these global issues is very well taken. Um, so one last question, Sushi, before we go to our top of the stack segment, and this is kind of related to top of the stack because it's about popular media. So, um, 
you know, many listeners probably have seen or heard about uh, popular depictions of how soldiers engineering might play out and often, you know, ways that it might play out in some kind of dystopic way, like the film Snowpiercer or the TV show Snowpiercer or the book Ministry for the Future. Um, you know, popular media coverage is often sort of catastrophic uh, or apocalyptic. Um, so, like, how much do you think these depictions matter to the way that publics are perceiving solar geoengineering today? And um, do you think it's a problem that, like, anyone in the policy or scientific community can do anything about? Or is it just something that the media is going to kind of run wild with? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 been really interesting. I think I think it's been helpful, but can be harmful as well, right? So I think it's been helpful in, in kind of getting this issue on a lot of people's radars. I think especially Ministry for the Future has been really pervasive and actually um, kind of prompting a lot of conversation around sword geoengineering. And I mean, even with, you know, people in sectors that I wouldn't expect, um, all of a sudden know what I'm talking about. And it's it's actually really incredible. So I'm, I'm really thankful for that type of work. I think on the other hand, when you look at something like Snowpiercer or like, you know, really like crazy things like Geostorm, right, that are like some depiction of geoengineering, but not really, you know, solar geoengineering in the actual applicable way. It's it's harmful that people are like, what is this? <laughs> like, this is absurd. Um, is it going to lead to like a snowball earth, right? And it's it's hard when the fake science just goes so far beyond real science that you can't really reel it in. And so having to kind of kind of bring people back to kind of what solar geoengineering is and what it could or could not do um, is challenging sometimes in the context of things like that. I will say um, I recently watched Extrapolations, which is the the TV show on Apple about climate change. And there was an episode about solar geoengineering, which I thought was super interesting because I think it was probably the most accurate depiction of solar geoengineering in terms of like what it is, what we do or don't know, how it could evolve from a research to deployment context. And there was a lot I disagreed with, but it was it was really well done in terms of actually doing the research and depicting it in a very knowledgeable way. And I think that's something I would I would like to see more of. I, I think one last thing I'll mention that has been challenging for me too is that a lot of the fake depictions of solar geoengineering deployment have a country in the global south usually india for some reason deploying solar geoengineering and i think that is it's i think i understand like why that's an interesting take right it's a global south country that is experiencing a lot of vulnerability and view solar geoengineering as a potential method to address a lot of the suffering happening in their country and that's something that i talk a lot about as well but as we keep depicting it in that way i think it's going to kind of become really problematic in taking away kind of the story and the narrative from these countries themselves because all of these stories are being written I think almost entirely by Global North authors, right? And so we're taking away the power for them to tell their own stories um, and to talk about what they view their role in this space potentially um, before we can have, like, before we build our own perceptions of it. And so that's that's one of the problems I see. And I hope I we start to see shifts in different types of stories and different storytellers. Yeah, that is that is such an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. So you're not going to be starting your capacity building meetings with like a, a showing of Geostorm? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, 
for for those listeners who haven't seen Geostorm, I can't say I would recommend it, but um, I do not but, recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> but it is for, if you want to see the extremist of the extreme takes on geoengineering, uh, it's 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 one to at least look up. Um, but uh, let's go from recommending things not to see to recommending things uh, to see. So, Suchi, what's uh, what's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack? Something that you've read or, or watched or heard that you think is great uh, and that you think our audience would enjoy? Yeah, I mean, I do want to recommend that episode of Extrapolation because I think it was really interesting. And I think actually the episode after it was even more interesting to me because it, it depicted um, – a version of, you know, an Indian community living through extreme heat um, in ways that I hadn't seen depicted before um, that were very real, right? In ways where they had to shift their hours to only going outside at night um, to where um, access to oxygen was limited by income. Um, and in ways that kind of just, ch- it just changed their ways of lives in, in, in kind of ways that like were depicted in just very real kind of understandable ways um and i thought it was really interesting but the other thing i'll recommend that it's it's not a happy topic but i thought it was a really interesting piece was um a story in propublica that came out i think last week around um climate migration um and the extent to which it could happen um and i don't think we've really internalized the extent to which this catastrophe is going to push humanity to its brink in really hard ways, right? I, and I think especially in the United States, we view ourselves as probably more immune to some of these impacts because of just where we are, right? We're not experiencing the same impacts that, you know, we're seeing in, you know, a lot of, you know, more vulnerable areas. Um, but this idea of, you know, massive climate migration um, will impact everyone. And, and this article just talked about how, close to, you know, a third of humanity will likely need to move um, and will feel the need to kind of escape kind of the lives that climate change has, you know, created for them um, was really devastating. Um, and I think it's it's one of those things where it's, it's become a term that we talk about, but I don't think that, like these numbers have really been driven home. And I think I'm still processing them as well, to be honest. I mean, it was, it was really stark, but I think also really important for us to recognize that as we continue to move past 1.2 and to 1.5 and likely beyond, that every tenth of a degree leads to someone not being able to live in their home. And it was, it was, um, I think, just a really important article that I think also made this topic much more accessible. Um, and I always love ProPublica's reporting, but this was just a really, um, a really interesting piece. Great. Well, thank you for for both those recommendations, uh, and we'll have links to both of them in in the show notes. Um, and one more time, just uh, say thank you to you, Suchi Talati from the Alliance for Just Liberation on Solar Geoengineering, for coming on and talking about this really challenging, really complex, and really important topic. We really appreciate it. I really appreciate you having me, and um, I just really value the conversation. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. 
You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.